With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to episode 368 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. In this episode, we look at a complex case from the west coast of Scotland. I think it raises lots of questions about the information released by authorities, when national security is potentially on the line, especially when this evidence doesn't necessarily support the official story. But first, I'm delighted that today's episode is once again sponsored by Shopify. Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide by simplifying selling online and in person so that you can successfully grow your business. Shopify covers all your sales channels and even gets you selling across social media marketplaces like Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Full of the industry-leading tools ready to ignite your growth, Shopify gives you complete control over your business and your brand without learning any of those new skills in design or coding. And thanks to 24-7 help and with an extensive business course library, Shopify is ready to support your success every step of the way. I remember a business a few years ago I set up, but it was so hard to actually sell the product and actually get paid. But changing the pricing and offers took me hours to my computer well, I needed to be doing much more important things. A friend recommended Shopify and it completely transformed my business. It just made everything really easy to do, leave me to focus on building the business. What I love about Shopify is that no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify will be there to empower you with the confidence and control to take your business to the next level. It's time to get serious about selling and get Shopify today. Sign up for a £1 per month trial period at shopify.co.uk slash truecrime or lowercase. Go to shopify.co.uk slash truecrime to take your business to the next level today. shopify.co.uk slash truecrime. Okay, so let's quickly set some context for today's story with our guest the month and year game. At number four in the UK charts was Westlife. With You Raise Me Up. <laughs> in the US, Chris Brown was top of the pile with Run It. And in Australia, the top album was Ancora from Il Divo. <laughs> excuse, the, excuse the pronunciation. In the news this month, the Civil Partnership Act came into effect in the UK and the first civil partnership was registered here. The film Brokeback Mountain was released. David Cameron at 39 was elected the leader of the Conservative Party, beating David Davis. And this was the month of the Buntfield Fire, which took place at the Hertfordshire Oil Storage Terminal. Remember that? And finally, this month saw the release of J.K. Rowling's novel, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. So did you guess the month and year? It was December 2005. Of course it was. Moving to a new country can be a daunting task. You leave behind everything and everyone you've ever known looking for a better life, 
and better opportunities. It can be difficult for many of us, but for 30-year-old Annie Borgerson, the transition from Sweden to Scotland was almost effortless. Annie was bright and outgoing, the first for adventure. She wanted to see what the world had to offer her. One of her great passions was to sing, especially in front of big audiences. She was kind, intelligent and extremely giving and ready for her new life in Scotland. When we pick up the story in 2004, 30-year-old Annie was preparing to make the biggest move of her life as she left her homeland of Sweden. She'd enrolled at the Aspect Language School and was hoping to obtain a Cambridge certificate in English. Annie was more than capable when it came to language learning, as she already spoke Swedish, French, Finnish and Hungarian, along with some good English. Annie eventually made it to the beautiful city of Edinburgh, one of my favourite places, where she settled in a flat at the Linton Court Apartments in Muriston Road, which was just to the west of the city centre, near Murrayfield Stadium. She spent her days attending English classes, whilst her evenings were spent exploring Edinburgh. Like so many before her, Annie quickly fell in love with the city and its people. And feeling settled in her new life, it didn't take long for Annie to ace all of her exams, and in early 2005 she collected her much-coveted certificate. After finishing her course, Annie returned to Sweden temporarily, where she was able to save some money, but she didn't stay in Sweden for long as her yearning for Scotland became too strong and it brought her back. In 2005, Annie returned to Scotland, settling once more in the Linton Court apartments. But as Annie was no longer a student, she needed to find full-time work to support herself. During her first day in 2004, she had worked in the hospitality industry, which really complemented her bubbly personality. And luckily for her, she landed a scholarship at the Scottish Whiskey Heritage Centre. The scholarship ran until August 2005, and as well as giving her great experience in the industry, it really helped her English. But once the scholarship was over, she began to look for paid work, and it was during this time that Annie's employment insurance from Sweden began to pay out, which helped her cover her rent and her other bills and expenses. The autumn months soon rolled by and the cold December winds hit Edinburgh. It is in fact known as the Windy City. The lively streets filled with tourists in shorts and carrying emergency umbrellas, of course, had now been replaced with large coats, hats and gloves. Despite how harsh and unforgiving the Scottish winters can be, Annie loved the cold weather. After all, she spent her childhood in Sweden, so she was no stranger to cold and snow. In early December 2005, Annie paid the rent for the upcoming month and she got on with her life. She went to a GP to receive a vaccination for what isn't clear and she topped up her leisure centre card as she so enjoyed her weekly swim. Whilst these details might seem quite minor and rather odd for me to mention right now, I think they'll become important as we move through the story as this behaviour from Annie is a clear indication that she was settled in Edinburgh and had no intention of leaving. On the morning of December the 3rd, 2005, Annie called her mum to let her know that she was leaving and heading home soon for a short break, and she headed to Presswick Airport, around 80 miles from her home to the southwest of Glasgow. 
Annie was planning just a short trip back home for the Christmas period, and she'd already booked herself in with her Swedish hairdresser a couple of days later. As the call disconnected, her mum, Guje, was delighted. She couldn't wait to see her daughter. They were very close. Especially as when Annie had called home recently, it was obvious to the family that she felt she was under some kind of threat. Quite what they weren't sure, but there was something. Annie appeared to be under the impression that she was being followed or targeted. She told a friend in a phone call that she had something to take care of, but the rest of her behaviour points to Annie planning on staying in Scotland after her trip home for Christmas. Hanging up the phone to her mum, Annie turned the keys to her flat and grabbed her backpack. Getting to Presswick Airport from Edinburgh isn't straightforward on public transport, frankly, what is in the UK, right? And would probably require a bus, a train, two more buses, then a short walk. But flights from Presswick are often cheaper than Glasgow or Edinburgh, so this is where Annie was headed for her Ryanair flight. But the flight from Presswick to Sweden took off one passenger short. Annie's family anxiously waited at the gates for her to arrive, but she never showed. Her brother had spent the afternoon getting her room ready for her, and he was crushed by her failure to come home. Where was she? When it was clear that Annie wasn't there, the Borgeson family reluctantly returned home hoping there was a reasonable explanation for Annie missing her flight. And what followed was a sleepless night of worry as Annie's phone continually rang through to her voicemail. This was completely out of character. The morning of December the 4th rolled around and Gouge had still not heard from her daughter. She began calling Annie's friends and this is when she learned of Annie's recent paranoia. One of her friends said that around the 1st of December, The two were on a call when Annie became panicked, noticeably panicked. She revealed to her friend that she believed her calls and texts were being monitored, but she didn't make clear why she believed this and why this was. Hours later, Guja's phone rang. Hoping that the nightmare was about to end and it was Annie, she rushed to answer, but it wasn't Annie but her sister. And within seconds, Guja's world crumbled around her as her sister explained that Annie's body had been found at 8 o'clock that morning by a man walking his dog along the Presswick shoreline just a couple of hundred yards from the airport. Annie had been found at the edge of the water, partially submerged, laying face down. But just why would Annie's body be found on the beach so close to the airport? None of it made sense. So let's go back to the previous day and look at what we now know about Annie's last moments. At about 3pm, CCTV footage shows Annie entering Presswick Airport. She approached a cash machine and tried to withdraw £100 from her bank account, but the transaction failed as she did not have enough money. She tried again, this time attempting to take £50, but again, there was not enough money in her account. In the footage, Annie appeared flustered and overwhelmed, which I guess is understandable given the situation. And after trying different amounts for a few minutes, she eventually abandoned the cash machine and began walking through the airport. At 3.14pm, Annie can be seen entering the airport terminal. Just 55 seconds later, Annie had made it to the other side of the terminal, but this was odd. 
as it should have taken a good one and a half, two minutes to walk this distance. This suggested that Annie had been running, but why? She wasn't late for the flight, she had plenty of time. In total, Annie spent just over 15 minutes in Presswick Airport, if the CCTV is accurate, which we assume it is. She never checked in for her flight, and she never made it to the gate. By 4.05pm, witnesses saw Annie on Station Road in Presswick Town Centre. Another witness made a somewhat conflicting report when they claimed to have seen Annie standing at the water's edge at Presswick Beach at about the same time. Annie was then seen on Presswick Beach talking to two men between 4.30pm and 5 o'clock. According to the two men that saw her, she appeared angry and upset. The identity of these men either remains unknown or has never been released to the public, but this was the final sighting of Annie alive. Scottish police were at the scene within minutes, and just a day after Annie's body was discovered, the police and coroner declared that Annie had taken her own life, a decision that her family totally denied. In fact, the conclusion of suicide was made for the coroner had even started the autopsy. The media, likewise, were very quickly informed that the incident was not suspicious. Annie's family were confused and outraged, and from here the relationship with the Scottish police totally broke down. In Annie's case, there's a lot of information that has never been released to the public. Annie's mum has made clear that she's had to fight so hard to obtain a lot of the CCTV footage and other evidence in her daughter's case. She said the Scottish police have made it extremely difficult for her to obtain this information, to pass on to independent investigators she hired, as she believed that her daughter's death had not been investigated correctly, and it certainly wasn't suicide. In fact, Annie's family were very clear about what they saw as the failings of the Scottish authorities, including, in their view, the coroner just didn't do their job. They also couldn't understand why the Scottish police had failed to make door-to-door inquiries and had failed to summon scene of crime officers, which would be standard practice. Minimal samples were taken from the scene, with Goujet stating that samples of the water where Annie was discovered were never taken. The autopsy report was described as bare bones, and it missed many key details. One detail that was mentioned in the report was small scratches and bruises on Annie's temple and arms, and in their analysis, the coroner determined that this was caused by debris hitting Annie when she was in the water. The family didn't agree and believed that this suggested foul play. The autopsy report was initially made available online, but if you try to get it now, the link leads to a 404 error. The report was also believed to make mention of a depression in Annie's head, which again was explained as debris injuries, something disputed by the family. There were so many other matters that didn't feel quite right to the family. So let me briefly just quote some other things. Among the things in her bags were her passport and the two library books that she'd been talking a lot about how to return to a library in Sweden. When found on the shore, she had her blue jeans and a red t-shirt on, as well as her shoes, but not her green jacket, which she'd been wearing earlier. In spite of the varying tides and streams and the different density and weights of the body and the objects, the jacket and the two bags were found close to her body. 
The sea ground where Annie was found is flat for several hundreds of metres out into the sea. And beside the wall, the water does not get more than about one metre high at the most. Sometimes it doesn't even reach the place where Annie was found. As late as August 2007, we got to know that Annie was found with DNA from an unknown individual in her hands. Since DNA vanishes very quickly in water, this suggests that Annie's body was in water for a very short time and or that she was transported to the shore and put there. Again to the family, this rules out suicide. 14 days after her daughter's death, Annie was released by the Scottish authorities and Gouget was able to hold her hand once more. When she saw her daughter's body for the first time, she gasped in horror. Her once beautiful waist-long blonde hair had been removed. About 60-70 centimetres were missing. Some reports have stated that the undertaker in Scotland had cut her hair, but this report can't be confirmed. In Sweden, Annie's family hired an undertaker, who immediately noticed a number of injuries. He said, black and blue thumbprints impressions on her neck, along with a palm-sized bruise behind her right ear and extensive bruising on her right arm. The palm-sized bruise was inexplicably missing from the initial report conducted in Scotland. The Swedish undertaker and independent investigators hired by the family were unable to determine whether Annie's hair had been cut or pulled from the scalp. It has been suggested that Annie's hair being pulled or cut is a clear indicator that she was attacked. The presence of bruising to her neck and body also indicates that she was taken by surprise and if her hair was ripped out, it could indicate she fought viciously to escape the grasp of her attacker. The Swedish undertaker pressed the Scottish government for more information, including post-mortem photos and tissue samples. But the Scottish police and authorities told Annie's family that they would under no circumstances release either of these things, saying that they may cause the family distress and that their disclosure is not in the public's interest. The Scottish police took a hardline stance against any information being released, again saying it was not in the public interest. They were seemingly desperate to portray a story of a young woman who had taken her own life. But this apparent lack of transparency just left more questions than answers. Annie had been happy and content in Scotland. It had been somewhere that she'd wanted to live for many years. She had a cohort of friends and co-workers and seemed to be enjoying life before, in the days before her death, she'd appeared to be paranoid about her safety. But again, this aspect of the case didn't seem to interest the police. Whilst the verdict of suicide was recorded, the exact cause and method of death was never reported. It appears a toxology report was undertaken, but Annie's family have never seen the results of this analysis, nor has the public. The Scottish government would also make a statement about Annie's case that was surprising and unusual to say the least. They addressed the media, saying the following. Information has been deemed classified as secret according to the provision of Chapter 15, Section 1 of the Public Access to Information and Secrecy Act and has been redacted to the attached file. The reason for this is that the information concerns Sweden's relations with a foreign state and a foreign authority and it can be assumed that a disclosure 
will damage Sweden's international relations or in other ways harm national interests. The files relating to Annie's death have remained sealed, not even her family has been allowed to see the unredacted files, and no further explanation of the possible damage that this would do has been released. Guji has also mentioned that when Annie's personal items were returned, she noticed that Annie's filofax was missing. Annie kept money, letters, and a list of phone numbers and addresses of everyone she knew in that filofax. Did she have the number and address of her killer, maybe, written in that filofax? Did the note she kept contain information that could possibly lead to an uncomfortable truth? The information about the missing filofax becomes important with the introduction of a man called Martin Leslie. She told her mum she considered him to be a sexual predator and she was alarmed at the rate at which the two bumped into each other in Edinburgh, although it is a small compact city. However, Martin Leslie, who told her he was the international rugby player, he actually wasn't. The real Martin Leslie, the New Zealander, was playing on the other side of the world. So this man pretending to be him in Edinburgh has never been tracked down. Was he responsible for Annie's paranoia and maybe her death? We don't know. Guja thought she might find some information to solve the mystery when she logged into her daughter's email account. But again, she found that everything had been scrubbed. All emails from the inbox, sent box, spam and drafts had been removed. It was as if the account had never been used. Similarly, the phone company that Annie used was at first resistant to hand over her call logs. After being pressed over the course of several weeks, they finally relented, but the results were stunning. As of December the 1st, the phone company stated that no calls or texts had been made from Annie's number, something her family and friends knew to be wholly untrue. Annie had called her mum on the morning of her death and had exchanged a number of texts with her friends between December the 1st and December the 3rd. The disturbing lack of communications leads to what is perhaps the biggest conspiracy theory, I guess, in Annie's case. Presick Airport was being used by Americans at the time to refuel planes, taking prisoners from the Middle East to Guantanamo Bay. And Annie's full name is Annie Christina Borgeson. And she shares a name for journalists famous for investigating and exposing the security services. And this Christina had worked on a story about rendition flights that had landed at Presswick Airport for refuelling and resupplying. It has been reported that this rendition project was orchestrated by the US and was used to circumnavigate national and international laws pertaining to the holding and treatment of suspected terrorists. At least that's what journalists and activists allege. We know that the US used these flights to transport suspected terrorists to black spots to be held indefinitely. So was Annie mistaken for the US journalist who shared the same name? Was Martin Leslie potentially an undercover operative sent to track Annie and eventually take her life? Or was it actually suicide as the authorities said? And are the family just unwilling to accept that their daughter tragically took her own life? Normally, I'd suspect the latter, but the facts, as we've heard today, really don't seem to add up. And even now in the years since Annie's death, the Scottish and Swedish governments have still refused to hand over documents to Annie's family. The toxicology report has never been released, 
and when her family did get hold of a few documents, her cause of death even was redacted. Why was it redacted if the verdict was suicide? Are the Scottish government complicit in a large-scale cover-up? Annie Borgeson certainly wasn't a threat to international security. Well, we assume. We assume she wasn't a spy, we don't know. And nor was she a whistleblown journalist. So just why was she targeted? There are so many unanswered questions that the family still have when it comes to Annie's death. When her mum and Annie's childhood friend Maria began digging into the case, they began noticing problems with their own emails and issues accessing the accounts entirely. Maria began receiving uncomfortable, silent and hang-up calls, suggesting that somebody maybe wanted to scare her away from uncovering the truth. All freedom of information and fatal accident inquiry requests have been denied, and Annie's family still remain in the dark today. So what do you make of what we've heard today? I'm not usually a person into conspiracy theories, as I hope you know by now, but there's clearly something not right here, wouldn't you agree? I still can't understand why Annie left the airport. She had money on her when her body was found, and she somehow ended up on the beach. It's very difficult to abduct someone from a safe place like an airport, so it seemed that she left of her own volition. But why? When asked recently, the Scottish police maintained that the case of Addie Borgeson is one of a tragic suicide, a terrible loss for a bright, promising young woman. Maybe they're right, but there are so many questions that need to be answered before Annie's family are convinced. Annie's family have offered a reward for anyone to come forward with information about her death. If you can help in any way, however insignificant the information seems to you, please contact Guj Borgeson at info at Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. To discuss this story and any other aspects of UK True Crime, please head to Facebook and join almost 92,000 of us who talk UK True Crime 24-7. And to support the show, please do head to patreon.com for bonus episodes. I think it's about 60 now. And loads of other exclusive content. A huge thank you to the latest members of this community. That's Timothy Dibbon, Patrick Rogers, Nicola Boutel, Jane Grit, and Alan Stevens. Thank you all so much. Your support is so much appreciated. So if you're not supporting me at Patreon yet, please do join our community at patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. And for less than a coffee a month, you can help me continue to release free weekly content. I even promise not to produce a branded t-shirt with my face staring out at the world, attractive as it is. I can't say fairer than that. Okay, so that's all for me, the host of the UK's 37th most popular true crime podcast for another week. If you can, please do support my sponsor Shopify and take a trial with them. It's a great product and it keeps advertisers spending some money with independent podcasters like me. So until we speak again next week, please do take it easy. And remember, despite all the others, stay classy. Cheerio for now. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, 
sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.